0: Your attention, please. Hand luggage restrictions apply to all airlines. Today's episode is another collaboration with my buddy, my partner, my badass extraordinaire, Chris Niddle, with the Burner Phone Podcast. It's 1972, and you're slowly filing into an American Airlines Boeing 727 with 90 other passengers right behind you. A young man, going by the name of Robert Wilson, enters the plane.
1: I was in the middle of the seat, uh, about seven or eight uh, uh, aisles up from the uh, back of the plane.
0: He may sound like an old man now, but... Back in 1972, he was a fresh-faced 28-year-old dressed in a sports coat and yellow trousers. Oh, and his name wasn't really Robert Wilson. It was Martin McNally. He wasn't a businessman either. McNally was here to hijack this plane. I'm Javier Leyva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. that they'll be landing in 15 minutes at their final destination, but no one is going to Tulsa today. McNally is going to take control of this plane and jump out of it with half a million dollars. But there's still time to call it off, right? Who am I kidding? It's too late for that. So
1: I I, I sat there and I I was thinking to myself, well, kid, uh, this is it. Uh, You're either going to do the job now or you can forget about it forever. Uh, pump up your nuts and uh, get it done, or or you're gonna have problems when you, when we land in Tulsa because you're gonna have to get off the plane and you're gonna have this uh, weaponry in your at a shake case and they may have metal detectors there in Tulsa. So after thinking that over very quickly, uh, I asked the uh, fellow that was sitting next to me. I said, Where's the restroom in this plane? He said it's in the back on the right hand side. Uh, men part in the back on the right hand side. I says okay. So I leaned down and picked up, very, very tenderly picked up my, uh, case. That thing weighed about, uh, at least 20, 20 pounds, maybe, maybe more.
0: McNally makes his way to the bathroom. Once inside, he pulls out a shaggy brown wig, sunglasses, and a sub machine gun also known as a grease gun.
1: And then I pull out the gun, and I uh, very, very, very cautiously engaged the uh, chamber, chambered one of the uh, one of the bullets. It was ready to go. All I needed to do now was pull the trigger and that thing's gonna go off. And then I put on uh, the uh, rubber gloves, and then uh, I opened the door, I got my sunglasses on, I opened the door, closed the door, Now I'm in the back of the plane, all the way, and none of the passengers can see me or, or are looking at me, so for about uh, at least two or three minutes, I'm trying to wave uh, one of the stewardesses back to me, and she wasn't looking at me, but when she came back, uh, and she did look at me and did see me, the first thing she said was, don't hurt anybody, and I, I told her, I said, young lady. I'm not here to hurt anybody. I got a, uh, a note for the pilot. Take this up to the pilot immediately and come back to me right away.
0: She takes a note to the pilot and quickly returns. McNally tells her to clear some of the seats towards the front of the plane.
1: So there was a, a, a family, a, a dude, his wife and two kids. He told him, uh, you need to move up to the first class section. Uh, so... Uh, uh, the uh, I think the uh, woman got, woman got up first, the wife, and then I think the daughter got went, and then a young son. He was about ten or eleven, twelve years old. When the husband got up, that was another another story altogether. When he got up, he was about I would say six or seven feet in front of me. He turned around and he was looking at me, looking at me. He wasn't blinking. I wasn't blinking. And that went on for about 30 seconds. So I know what he's thinking in his brain. I need to take this guy out. And he's thinking that uh, if he can uh, uh, get me off guard uh, with a blink, blinking my eyes or something, he could quickly charge me. I know what he's thinking. So I took the gun and I pointed it directly at him and gave him my dog growl, like, uh, and he turned around and uh, bucked it up to the first five section at that point in time. Uh, if he had tried something, uh, yeah, this this thing would have kicked off some uh, slugs into his body, and uh, it would have probably killed him uh, because I I would have done my best to kill him.
0: He sits down. Then the pilot comes on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot's speech. A passenger needs to return to St. Louis, so we need to turn the plane around.
1: So that was the first notice that the passengers had that we were returning to St. Louis. I had a good, uh, good upbringing. My, my father was uh, prosperous in the shoe business. And uh, he provided uh, everything for the children. Uh, of all the kids, uh, I was the only one that was the uh, black sheep.
0: McNally dropped out of high school and enlisted in the U.S. Navy, where he worked on aircrafts as an electrician. After being discharged from the Navy, he moved back to Detroit and needed money.
1: I was I was riding around with a friend of my with a friend of mine, and uh, I said. Uh, I'd like to get some extra money, and I think I can get it uh, uh, just uh, walking out of the store and telling them uh, it's a robbery, and uh, get, get, get the money out of the cash, cash registers and go on my way.
0: So, without giving it a second thought, McNally walks into the store and asks to buy a pack of cigarettes. While the clerk turns around, McNally whips out a gun and says,
1: Don't panic, this is a whole, put all the money out of the uh, register. I don't want your wallet or anything else. Just the just the dollar bills. I don't know. I don't know why I was doing the stupid stunts, but uh, there were three of them, and I got uh, fifty bucks, seventy-five bucks, and one time on a Monday evening, hundred and ten bucks. That was really stupid.
0: It's kind of ironic that he robbed a gas station because years later McNally would eventually become an owner of a Shell station. One day, while in the car with his pal Jim Petty, he turned up the radio.
1: So, as we were going, it was about ten o'clock in the morning, and I heard a, a news uh, spot uh, on one of the Detroit radio stations.
0: Some guy hijacked a seven twenty-seven plane and jumped out with two hundred thousand dollars in cash. He was never seen again.
1: And what they said was, uh, all these skyjackings that are happening. Uh, They can solve the problem if they just give everybody, uh, or or get the tickets, they can give them 500,000 bucks and these guys won't be taking these planes.
0: The hijacker he heard about on the radio was none other than the infamous D.B. Cooper. To this day, no one really knows who D.B. Cooper was or if he survived his escape.
1: And when I heard that, I just, oh my God. And I laughed like hell. And I said, I told uh, Jim Penny, I said, you know, Jim, that wouldn't be a bad way to uh, make some quick money. Just uh, get, uh, get a ticket, uh, get on the plane and uh, get some parachutes and bail out.
0: I mean, what could go wrong, right? And I said, uh, yeah, that, that'd be something. So we were laughing and everything. He was serious about this. But great secrets are apparently hard to keep. His pal Jim told a guy named Paul about McNally's hijacking plans.
1: James Petty said he had a conversation with uh, Paul Zack about uh, what I was uh, thinking about doing. And when he said that, I responded uh, yelling at him. I said, what in the hell are you doing talking to him about this uh, possibility? Because that guy's got the biggest mouth in Detroit. And he's friends with one of the uh, Detroit undercover uh, cops. Well, he says, uh, oh, he won't say anything. Don't worry about it. I said, yeah, all right. I sure hope he doesn't.
0: If this plan was going to work, McNally needed to do his research.
1: I made uh, several, uh, several trips to, uh, uh, around the country. I went to Chicago, Indianapolis, uh, St. Louis. Uh, I went to Kansas City, uh, I went to all these different airports trying to uh, (coughs) to determine which one would be uh, good to uh, take a plane from, which one had uh, less security, and I came up with uh, St. Louis.
0: You have to remember, back in 1972, you didn't need to go through security for domestic flights. Imagine that. There's just one tiny little problem. With this plan, McNally doesn't know how to skydive.
1: I never jumped out of a plane before. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when I made the decision that yeah, I would be doing a jump, I went uh, over to the uh, local library in my town, and I just uh, I stayed in the library uh, for about five or six hours, and I was getting all these books on parachuting. And what I was looking for was the uh, the calculation to determine when uh, terminal velocity is reached. And I know that I got to get to a point of uh, to open this parachute. I'm, when should I open the parachute? That was the, that was the key. And I can I, I came to the conclusion that from ten thousand feet at three hundred miles an hour out of the plane, I would have to delay the opening of the chute approximately. 15 to 20 seconds to reach a speed that wouldn't blow out the panels. And as soon as I came to that, uh, it's an algebraic equation. As soon as I came to that, I took all the books and put them back in their place. And I said, that's it. Now I know uh, how to delay the uh, shoot and get it
0: open properly. Next step, he needed a partner. He asked several people and they said no.
1: And the guy that uh, did agree was uh, Walter Pelikowski of River Rouge, uh, Michigan. First of all, I needed a gun. I'm going to do a score. And uh, he said, I got a gun. So I said, I'd like to see it. And he had a very nice looking rifle. Uh, and uh, I said, I think this will work. So he uh, gave me the gun, didn't even charge me. And I told Wall, I says, uh, I'm going to do an aircraft aircraft skyjacking. And I would like you to go along. And uh, if you do, uh, we'll get uh, two packages of a half a million dollars each. And we can both bail out and uh, watch our back when we hit the the ground. So after less than a month, uh, he, he says, no, I can't do that. That's too scary. That's too dangerous. I said, all right, well, what I'll do is I'll give you... 25,000 bucks if you'll be my uh, chauffeur. I said, okay, I'll do that.
0: Airport, check. Skydiving 101, check. Gun, check. Partner, hmm, sort of. Finally, McNally needed to buy a ticket, so he bought one for 70 bucks under the name of Robert Wilson. He's all set. Today's the big day.
1: So I took a bath. And uh got dressed up, uh, got my uh, my tie and my shirt, and uh, I was looking uh, like a businessman. I went up to the ticket counter at the loading area, gave them my uh, pass, and uh, gave them my ticket. So they started loading all the passengers up, and no metal detectors or anything, so uh, I was good to go with what I had in my attaché case.
0: So we're back on the plane. At this point, the passengers are starting to realize that the plane has been hijacked, and the cash McNally is hoping for is not on board. So they need to land in St. Louis and negotiate a new plan.
1: Oh, well, while well, we're on the ground, I told the uh, stewardesses, I said, we got to get rid of some of these people. We got too many people on this plane. So let's get rid of all the people, uh, all the women and children right now. All the women and children's gotta get off the plane. And you can tell the pilot that you can announce that uh, if anybody's got health problems, heart problems, uh, or taking medications and so forth, they can get off too. So what came over the intercom there going to all the passengers was that uh, the pilot said, uh, anybody who's got heart problems they can go too. get up and go too. well let me tell you something Chris Every everybody 100% of the people 100% of the people on the plane stood up and were ready to uh, book uh, out of the plane <laughs> I jumped out of my seat I must have jumped 3-4 feet in the air and, and I was screaming sit down sit down now so everybody sat down just came back uh, to me and I said, listen, you go up there and you tell that pilot, if he pulls another stunt like that, I'm going to come up and I'm going to throttle his ass. You know, no more uh, fun and games, uh, don't be pulling any more stunts. So I says, we still, we still got to get some people off this plane, all the women and children. And I want to keep about 15 uh, healthy, uh, able men on this plane. So you go ahead and make your choices here, but I, I want 15 men left on this plane. Is that clear? She said, okay, yeah, all right. So that's what she did. We we unloaded the plane with all these people. We had about 15 of them. And she said, what's next? And I said, well, we got to get up in the air. we got to get off this ground. They're going to have FBI snipers all over this place. So, uh, the pilot took off, got back up in the air. And the pilot said, is it okay if I fly or, or, or around St. Louis or get out of the airways of St. Louis? And I, I, I said, I never talked to him, but this was all done through the stewardess. I said, you can tell the pilot, he can fly anywhere he wants to. I don't care. But, uh. Yeah, we're, we're we're gonna stay in the air until uh, we got all the money ready to go on the ground. Okay, so she went up and told the pilot that. She came back and told me that uh, they don't have the money in St. Louis. They they can't get the money in St. Louis, but we got the money in uh, our main uh, main uh, facilities down in uh, Dallas Fort Worth. So is it okay if we go there? And I, I says, uh, young lady, you can go anywhere you want in the world, but uh, we we need to get the, the half
0: million dollars. Remember, this is the early 70s. Half a million dollars was really worth more like three million today.
1: So as we're going, the pilot went uh, full speed. As we're going like that for about five or 10 minutes, the stewardess comes back again and tells me, "Yeah, we're able to get the half million bucks in St. Louis. I said, oh, yeah? What, what happened to the 100000 bucks? That was all they could get. I said, now they got a half million bucks? Well, let's go back to uh, St. Louis and get it.
0: They had a crew change and brought the money and the parachutes on board.
1: As we're on the ground... The pilot uh, came back and he, uh, you know, he, he, he sent word that uh, they would like to change crews uh, because these guys have been up all all day. And I said, yeah, okay, you can change crews. Go ahead and do that. The money was brought on board. He brought in a sack of the money, a mail bag, and I opened it up and I looked in the bag and uh, in the long package it had... Uh, uh all the twenty dollar bills. nine thousand. I think there were nine thousand five hundred uh uh twenty dollar bills and in the small package I think there were hundred dollar bills. And a uh, hundred thousand dollar bills were all new and serialized. So yeah that would have been hard to spend those bills. They bought the um parachute time. We got rid of the uh first crew uh and uh bought in a, a second crew and on the second crew, they had put an FBI agent, uh, as the, uh, flight engineer. Now, as we're on the ground making all these, uh, changes to, with the money in the parachutes, I, I suspected, and I was right, that they had, uh, brought in, uh, a weapon through the uh, window of the cockpit. The pilot had brought in, uh, a pistol. And that pistol was, uh, uh, meant to uh, kill me, if they got a chance.
0: It's now about midnight, and they're ready to take off again. This time, with the money.
1: The pilot uh, starts rolling, uh, starts to give it the gas, uh, throttling up. And then he stops. And he says, there's a truck on the runway, and there's a vehicle on the runway. We have to wait. And he says, oh, my God, it's going to hit us. So, yeah, this, as it turned out, it was a brand spanking new Cadillac run by some guy named Hanley out of St. Louis.
0: You heard right. As they were trying to take off, a car comes out of nowhere and crashes into the plane. Apparently, this David Hanley guy was watching the hijack on the evening news while downing a couple of brewskis at the airport lounge. With the help of some liquid courage, he got into his catalog convertible and drove through the airport fence and smashed into the wheel of the plane at 80 miles per hour.
1: And he was drunk. Drunk as a skunk. Drinking and getting drunk and everything. So he stood up and announced to the people that uh, you keep watching this TV, you're going to see something that's going to shake the world. When the, when the Cadillac hit the nose gear, it pushed pushed me and my seat up about a, a couple of inches. And when it hit the uh, main strut, I moved up again. So I had two bumps on this. But uh, uh, when that happened, I jumped out of my seat and I says, get this fucking plane in the air. I don't need any bullshit. Get in the air. I was telling the stewardess that. So the pilot came on the intercom and he says, "So we've been hit by a vehicle. We've been hit by by a vehicle. We can't we can't take off. Oh, we're going to have to do something else." So I sent word up to him. I says, "You tell uh, ground control that we need an aircraft a seven twenty seven. Any aircraft on this uh, tarmac." We're going to take it. Whoever, whichever airline t- owns it, we're taking it. I want to, uh, the tanks topped off and uh, ready to go, and uh, that's it. So the pilot came on and told them and so forth. So when they got when they got the plane ready, you know, this was taking some time. When they got the plane ready, the pilot says, where do you want this thing to park? And I said, put it about two or three hundred feet in front of in front of us. So that's what they did. And uh, I said, we're going to have to make the change. And uh, one of you one of you guys is going to have to carry the uh, package of money. But uh, you make sure the FBI knows that when I enter this plane, if I see anybody in this plane crouched in the seats, or in the uh, restroom, uh, John's. I'm going to blow them away on site, no questions. They're dead. So you make sure the uh, FBI know this. And uh, they did, and uh, we uh, we, di- we did the uh, transfer. The flight crew went first. I had uh, one uh, volunteer hostage at this time. I only had one. I uh, let everybody else go. And I had uh, one stewardess. I think I, I had one, just one stewardess.
0: It took 90 minutes, but they finally got another plane.
1: So as I'm getting off the plane, I'm the last one to go. These two stewardesses are around me, and I've got my attaché case up covering my face. But they lifted the uh, stairs up, and within a matter of a couple of uh, minutes, we were in the air. As we get, As we get in the air... I, I told the uh, told the pilot that uh, fly at uh, ten thousand feet uh, and uh, head for uh, we're going to Toronto. When you hit Toronto Airport, uh, uh, make a pass on the runway about three or four hundred feet, so I can verify that uh, we are in uh, at the airport Toronto, and uh, then we'll uh, rise up uh, to uh, five thousand feet and go on to uh, JFK uh, in. Uh, New York uh and uh I'll come up to the uh cockpit and give you some uh, radio uh frequencies, and I will be talking to my partner on the ground, so that's the way it's gonna work uh I looked at my watch I think it was i think it was close to two thirty I forget, but I'm looking at my watch and I said, gee, I gotta get out of this plane." We're, we're in, it's the summer, it gets, uh, uh, gets light early, and these farmers in the area that were going, uh, they get up early, and I got to go.
0: It was now or never.
1: And as this was going down, there were four girls around me in the back of the plane. And uh, uh, I got the harness. I'm getting it strapped in and everything. One of the girls gets on her knees. Her name was uh, Diane uh, Dumois. Diane Mois, a very nice young blonde, <clears throat> kind of girl I would like to marry, actually. But uh, she's on her knees, helping uh, me with the leg straps, and she looks up to the other three girls and she says, "I don't think we're supposed to be doing this." And I, I looked on her and I says, "Young lady, trust me. You're supposed to be doing anything that I say." This is, this is serious stuff, okay?
0: They lowered the rear stairwell.
1: Earlier I had the uh, co-pilot a lower the uh, stairs on this 727 aircraft. And what he told me was he'd never done this before, so when he does it, he's going to have to uh, jump forward so he doesn't, isn't pulled out, sucked out. So the co-pilot uh, gets on the intercom and he's talking to the pilot and he's telling the pilot, Slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. Okay, stop right there. So we're at the speed. And at that point there, we're doing about a 300 miles per hour ground speed. 300. And that's the way I like the steps. And the uh, FBI agent was sitting there. And I'm sure he had the gun in his hand. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I think he did have the gun in his hand. Now, I got my gun, it looks like a grease gun, a military grease gun, machine gun. And I got that thing there and uh, got my finger on it. And I, I think that was the only thing that deterred him from uh, taking his pistol and shooting a couple of slugs into me to kill me. Now, as I'm getting uh, down the steps, very, very cautiously, I mean, seriously, this was rough. The wind turbulence was uh, heavy. I uh, climbed down the stairs on my ass and my feet. I got to the end and I'm hanging on. I don't have any gun in my hand at this time. I'm hanging on with both my hands and I get to the bottom of the step and I put my, I look down. The sky is clear, it's dark and it's clear and I can see lights on the ground. Now, we're at 10,000 feet.
0: The cabin begins to lose pressure.
1: I put both my feet out and I touch the, uh, air, the wind going over my feet. It's strong. I put both my feet out and I very slowly ease my body out onto the airstream. Now, I'm, I've got both of my hands on the bottom of this step and i'm looking towards the earth okay there's nothing else in my body uh connected to the plane except my two hands and this is 300 miles an hour so um i look up and in my brain i'm thinking boy if they were if they knew i was this vulnerable uh, hanging on this uh, plane like this uh, and they would just come in, come in here and blow me away and hit me in the head boom I'd be dead
0: it worked McNally holds on to the bag full of money and let's go
1: I released my hands and uh, I immediately uh, separated from the plane uh, at one point I was thinking boy this is, this is nuts this is really something here
0: Next time on Pretend Radio. Martin McNally hijacks a plane, grabs a bag with half a million dollars, and drops like a bullet to the earth.
1: I'm coming down. Starting on at 300 miles an hour, I got to get to terminal velocity, which is about 130 miles an hour uh, before I can pull that chute. When I landed on the ground, uh, and I was listening to, listening and watching to see if any, that turn on their lights.
0: Days later, his getaway car arrives.
1: As soon as I saw that sign, I said, Well, I know where we're at. Then uh, we're right into uh, home, home stretch.
0: But that's just half the story.
1: I screamed out loud. I says, Now, move! So we started running. Fast as our
0: little legs could carry us. That's next time on Pretend Radio. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Chris Nittle with the Burner Phone Podcast, and he's the one that worked on this story. You might remember Chris from a couple episodes ago. We did The Good Cop, Bad Cop. It's a story about a, a former corrupt cop in LAPD. Uh, it was an amazing story. And just like that story, this story that Chris brought to us today is equally as fascinating. So, Chris... Tell me about the story, man. Like, tell me about why hijacking was such a big deal back back in the day.
2: You know, during this era, it was known as the uh, golden age of skyjacking in the United States, which ran from 1968 through 1979 and into the 80s in other parts of the world. And uh, it was a different time then. Uh, airport security was very lax. Yeah. I
0: mean, for me, you know, I, I grew up at a, in a time like in the 80s that I remember watching the news and random people would hijack planes and go to Cuba. And it was, it was different prior to 9-11, right? Like it didn't seem like as dangerous, like the whole plane was going to like, you know, People were going to die. It seemed more like uh, people wanted ransoms or people wanted some political thing. Uh, But now now in like the post 9-11 era, for us who have lived during this time, it's hard for us to imagine like
2: the airports back then. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, everyone knows the most infamous uh, skyjacker, D.B. Cooper, who was never caught. But during this five year period, over one hundred and thirty American planes were hijacked during the golden age of skyjacking. And Martin, M- Martin J. McNally was one of those guys. Yeah,
0: I, I read an article during the research here that there was like at least, you know, one hijacking a day at some point. I mean, it was like really common, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I think it's funny because, you know, um, D.B. Cooper is obviously the, the one that everybody knows about. But, mm-hmm. you know, Martin McNally, you know. I, I almost think that's an even more fascinating story, don't you? Because we actually know what happened.
2: Yeah, and, it's, and how often do you get to talk to a guy who hijacked a plane, demanded money from the FBI, they, they handed it over, and he jumped out with the money? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen often. And, uh, and it's, it's sort of like if we could talk to D.B. Cooper, what would what would his experience be like? And I feel like he can kind of channel that. You know, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. No, man, he was a fascinating guy, you know, like this old timey like character. And I I could just listen to him all day. And he had an incredible memory. I mean, this guy would like recall a specific day, the day of the week, the time of the day. I mean, and every time I looked into it, it was 100 percent accurate. I mean, his he was dead on. What were some of the things that like you heard from his story? You're like, ah, this is bullshit. This is not real.
2: While he was hijacking the plane, while he was still on the ground, uh, the news was covering it live and there was a guy in a bar nearby and he was sitting there at the bar, drinking beers, watching the TV, watching what was happening live. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. And he jumps in his ride and he takes off, he breaks into the, um, Breaks into onto the runway and smashes his car into the plane as the plane was trying to take off. I mean, that. Yeah, that alone was nuts. You know, so
0: I called bullshit on that, too. And uh, when my wife listened to this episode, uh, she was like, yeah, that that couldn't have possibly happened. But it did happen. And I actually pulled up a New York Times article from like that time. And it totally happened. And uh, it it goes into it in great detail. I'll I'll put that in the show notes, too, so you guys could uh, read more about that. It took a lot of strategy on his part, too, right? Because there was like a lot of unknown factors.
2: Yes, and that was the first time he would ever jumped out of a plane. So he needed to figure out how to use a parachute for the first time right there on the spot under all that stress. The dude had some balls. He had some serious balls. And, you know, I
0: mean, I would imagine that all that cash, even if he would have gotten away with it, all that cash would have been marked, right? He would have had to launder all that money or spend it really slow. Or So, Chris, one of the things that, you know, we left the audience hanging here, and I feel really bad. I mean, this is like a hell of a cliffhanger, right? Like yeah. Martin McNally just jumped out of this plane, you know? And there's a part two, so there's more to talk about. But there's something that we didn't get into, which was, you know, the They weren't just going to let this guy jump out of the plane, right? I mean, obviously the airline and the FBI and everybody involved had a plan, right? Can you talk to us about
2: that? Yeah, they did. They had some countermeasures. Um, One of those involved, and, and Martin didn't know this at the time, but there was an FBI plane trailing the jet. And they had delivered, the FBI had delivered a message to the pilot of the jet and told him, leave the exterior lights on on the jet. That way when Martin jumps out, we'll be able to see him jump out of the plane and then we'll be able to circle the area zero and pinpoint his location and swarm his ass. Um, what ended up happening is the pilot didn't leave the lights on for whatever reason. So he fucked up. Um, mm-hmm. and Martin was able to get out undetected, jump into the night sky and, and disappear. Um, but yeah, they they did that, and obviously they planted a uh, F- FBI agent on the plane, and they were trying to take him out, you know, but they didn't get the opportunity.
0: Well, I, you know, we should talk about this because I think Martin McNally speaks so matter of fact that um, you kind of lose... Some some of the details that that are like, holy shit moments, you know, and one of them for me was the fact that he brought one of those greaser guns, you know, like one of those <laughs> greaser guns on the planes, like the ones that like the mobsters use. And like, you know, that's to me pretty crazy. T- tell me about this weapon.
2: You know, um, he I asked him about the weapon and. Well, he told me, he said it was a military type grease gun. He couldn't remember the make or model of the weapon. Uh, He said it had a uh, used 45 caliber rounds um, and it had a stick magazine. It was, I I think it was some sort of submachine gun. Uh, Who knows though? I'd I'd be curious to know what type of gun it is. And maybe with further research, I could find out, Uh, but he doesn't even remember the make. You know, to be honest, he didn't sound like he really even knew how to use it. Uh, he'd never test fired the weapon before. Um, so, you know, he was going, you know, flying by the seat of his pants.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, neither of us are like pilots or <laughs> engineers or anything like that. But to me, like the, like the idea of opening up a 747 in the middle of the air and like the cabin pressure and all that stuff, I mean, That, that, that's pretty ballsy, man. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the pilot had actually told Martin, he said, look, I've never opened. I've never opened the hatch before flying through the air. I've never let down the ramp. And he was afraid of being sucked out into the night sky. So they had to slow the plane down, speed it up, slow it down. Then they opened the hatch, Uh, but they really didn't know what was going to happen.
0: Yeah. I would imagine that that would have been terrifying. And also, just so you know, uh, that you can't do that anymore. Now, those hatches don't open up while the plane's in the air. So, <laughs> we've learned a couple lessons since the golden age of hijackings. Right. Yeah. And uh, airport security is a little tighter than it used to. So, well, Chris, thank you so much, man, for letting us hear this story. It was incredible. And just so you know, I'm not going to wa- wait two weeks to play part two. Oh, good it's going to be available next week because you know I, I i mean that's a hell of a cliffhanger man you left us hanging so right w- what can we what can we expect in part two without giving it away
2: i'm not going to say anything just wait for part two <laughs> i right. can't wait to hear it
0: thanks to our new patreon supporter key sardi I'm just blown away by your generosity. Your donations are being put to good use too. I used to transcribe all the interviews myself, word for word, and it would take hours, days really. And now with your help, I'm able to send off those interviews to get transcribed. That saves me so much time, time that I could put back into making more shows. So thank you, Key Sardi, and everyone else who has liked the show enough to support. If you'd like to support the show, Go to pretendradio.org and click on the Donate button. A dollar goes a long way. Again, thank you to Chris Nittle for this amazing story. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how you do an NPR driveway moment. You can now leave your car and go to work. And tell your boss, I'm sorry you're late. I'm Megan. I'm RJ.
2: And we host Ono oh Lit Class, a comedy literature podcast that tells you all the strange and sexy facts you never knew about the books you had to read in school.
0: Every episode is a fun, foul-mouthed spark notes for your ears, filled with author bios, plot summaries, bad impressions, and Megan singing.
2: It's mostly you that sings.
0: No, I sing well, she sings poorly.
2: That's not true. So come listen to us ruin classic literature one book at a time at onolitclass.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Oh no, Liquash. We're for kids.
1: No, we're not.
0: I'm Roseanne host of the California dreaming podcast, a show that delves into the darker side of the not so golden state together. We will visit some of the most unhinged and chilling crimes that ever shook California. Join me as I take you on a journey into a new story each week with a different backdrop from all around California. From the bright lights and glamour of Hollywood to the picturesque and tranquil wine country, no crime, no town, nobody is off limits. Listen to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you.